everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast. This week's guest says there is a damn good reason why people are struggling. We are not raised to understand ourselves powerful stuff, isn't it? Dr. Soph is a registered clinical psychologist and the Sunday Times bestselling author of A Manual for Being Human, which is a brilliant book. This is an incredible episode. You are going to learn why going to therapy and seeking to understand ourselves better isn't selfish at all. And Dr. Soph explains how it actually helps those around us. You are going to learn about attachment styles. You're going to learn what they are, why they matter, reflect on what yours might be and how understanding yours and therefore yourself better can help you in your parenting. We also talk a lot about emotions. Dr. So shares a one minute practice, just one minute to better be able to connect to your feelings and why that is so important, particularly as parents. We also talk about guilt and this is going to really help you if you are someone that feels guilty or like you're failing a lot of the time. Dr. So shares how to challenge your feelings of guilt and why we might feel guilty and it's not what you might think. This episode is brilliant. It's like a whistle-stop tour of some of the most important psychological concepts that us mothers need to know about. So please do share it far and wide and I hope you really enjoy it. Here it is. Before we get on to this week's episode, I just want to ask you something. Are you feeling the Christmas pressure? I know that I am. And let me just be clear, I am no Scrooge. I love Christmas, but for us mothers, it can be an incredibly stressful time. I don't know about you, but I feel like my to-do list quadruples. I pile all this pressure on myself, throw in some family dynamics into the mix. And is it any wonder that we often get to the big day frazzled, running on pure adrenaline, painting on this smile and actually forgetting to really enjoy some of the magic that we've created so wonderfully for everyone else? Well, after the year we've all had, I want to help change that this year. I want to help you feel calmer, have less on your plate, show you how to use boundaries so you feel more empowered and in control and basically have the best Christmas ever. I think we all deserve that. We started the year in lockdown homeschooling. Let's end it by actually allowing ourselves to enjoy this break. So as a little Christmas present from me to you, I am offering you four 
totally free workshops throughout November. They will be online and cover everything from how to manage tricky family dynamics to how to halve your to-do list and how to say no and set boundaries without coming across as a total bar humbug. I have to say a massive thank you to our sponsor, Whirly, the revolutionary toy swap service. It's because of their very generous support that I'm able to offer these to you totally free. So I really hope that you can come to one or all four of the workshops. Head to motherkind.co to book your space. Welcome to the podcast. We've just been having a lovely chat about book writing. I'm just so excited to chat to you. I've wanted to chat to you for a long, long, long time. So thank you for coming on. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me on. I am thrilled to hear you want to be on for a while. You could have just invited me back then. Yeah, I could have done. Could have done. I have this list. <laughs> I can't remember what triggered it one day. I was like, right, I'm just going to ask Dr. Soph. I love that. I wanted to go a bit Oprah on you and read some of your words back to you because, you know, as you know, it's all parents listening to this and I just feel like they're so powerful. So let me read them back to you, mainly because I want everyone to hear them who hasn't read the book. You said there's a damn good reason why people are struggling. We are not raised to understand ourselves. We're not taught to understand our emotions or who we are at a young age. Instead, we're raised to fear them and to experience shame when any kind of distress arises. Rather than being taught simple and effective coping strategies, we're normally taught how to put a brave face on, told to be good, snap out of it, or that's no big deal. Instead of being encouraged to embrace all of who we are, including imperfections and weaknesses, we are expected to create a personal brand to show the outside world at all times. We hide how we truly feel, even from ourselves. This means we're totally ill-equipped to manage the stresses of life, and what it means to live inside our emotion-filled bodies. You were channeling something that day. It's, it's funny, as you were reading, I was like, did I really write this? It definitely rings a bell, but I think I was in a kind of dissociated state the whole time I was writing because it was quite stressful. So I'm thrilled that that sentence made sense. <laughs> it's good, right? It's good stuff. I think the reason I just so wanted to voice that was because it's so you know, aligned to what the podcast is about. And because it's all parents listening, I think there's such an opportunity with work like yours and teaching like yours for us as parents to learn to better handle our emotional selves so that we can then model it and do it better for the next generation, which is my deep passion and wish and mission. And I know it's yours too. I love that mission. And I think what's really important as well is to say that we're all learning together and it's never too late to learn. And the other thing is, because as you were reading that statement, I was thinking about how if you're a parent, it applies to you as a parent, as in you are unlikely to have been raised to understand your emotions, but also applies, I suppose, if you're a parent, you're thinking, oh no, well, now I have the pressure of raising my child to understand their emotions. And I'm just very aware that right now, and maybe it has been the same for a long time, but there's so much pressure on parents to do it perfectly in inverted commas. And I know that puts a lot of stress on people already going through a lot of stress. So I'm glad we're talking about this topic. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes I feel like, I mean, I often share this. Being a parent, and this is one of the reasons that I started Mother Kind, so I just felt like 
the support wasn't there with this kind of angle. For me, it brought up a lot of the stuff that you talk about in the book. It brought up my attachment style front and center. Mm-hmm. It brought up a lot of those past experiences at the same time as feeling under-resourced, unsupported with a small human to raise. And I honestly, so like, I was like, how is anyone doing this? Honestly. Yeah. <laughs> I just looked around, I was like, how does everyone look like they're smiling, pushing a buggy through the park? Yes. I was having this huge emotional yes. kind of intergenerational response to 100% what was going imagining- on. I don't know how old your little one is, but often parents report that with each new age kind of bump that a child has, you then start facing your own emotional experiences again. You know, so when they start going to junior school or nursery or even moving into their own bed, I realize I've gone backwards in age, (laughs) but you're facing new challenges. So it doesn't go away. It's not like you have the baby and then, oh, now it's the easy part or, oh, it can feed itself and walk now. Oh, it's the easy part. There's always some psychological process that you're having to reflect on in yourself, as well as keeping a child alive and managing all of the other stuff on top of it. You know, starting a podcast and having these conversations was entirely selfish of me because (laughs) I need them so much. And that's absolutely my experience. And Philippa Perry you know, talks about that beautifully in her book, that it gets triggered in us, the age that our children are. Exactly, exactly, yes, the ghost in the nursery. So where did your passion from psychology come from, rooted in your own early years? Was it because you experienced that deep nurture and you wanted to talk to others about it, or was it because you kind of perhaps felt that was lacking and that's where the passion came from? Wouldn't it be lovely if I came to it from a position of, I was just so well-rounded and so well-nurtured that I just thought, I just want to share all these great things. I think you rarely meet people in therapy who feel that way. My mum is extraordinary. So in case she's listening, I'm not saying that she did a bad job. She was fantastic, single parent. But essentially at the age of 18, I started having panic attacks out of nowhere. It felt very much like they'd come out of nowhere. I didn't really know anyone who'd experienced panic attacks. I didn't really know what they were. I could only really turn to the media and all the information that that was really available was quite scary that panic attacks were mental illness that they never went away that they meant that you were essentially not going to have a good fulfilling life and then you should take it to the extreme there's films like one through over the cuckoo's nest where you know people are portrayed as mad and bad and dangerous so I went from being this really kind of confident 18 year old insecure but confident you know how teenagers managed to pull off to being terrified that I'd fundamentally changed as a human and there was no way forwards. So when I did eventually get therapy and got the right support I needed to understand panic and really overcome the panic attacks, I just couldn't believe that this information was out there, but that I had to hit more than rock bottom, it felt like, in order to access it. So essentially from that moment on, I was like, right, I am stopping my art degree. I am going to learn about psychology and then I'm going to learn everything I can and try and share it. And it's really interesting because as a clinical psychologist, you do your doctorate in the NHS. So the whole way through my training and my master's and before, I was working with people who'd been on waiting lists for considerable periods. Some people were lucky and got seen really quickly. And I was seeing in the chair opposite me, people who were very similar to me at 18, who may have had totally different struggles, but who'd sat on a waiting list never had been given 
basic psychology that would have taken the edge off their distress and would have at least given them a basic starting point on how to cope. So the mixture of my experience and then what I was seeing in the healthcare system, it's not the NHS's fault. It's the fact that we don't get taught it in school and at other stages just made me know, right, I have to leave my job and start sharing this information far and wide. And you've done such an incredible job with the mission. The book is just incredible. I read a lot of these types of books and I have to say, as I was reading, I was thinking, imagine if every parent, adolescent, teen was given these tools. It would be world changing. Oh, my word. It would be, firstly, thank you. I'm deeply flattered. I'm not sure if I think that anything I wrote would be world changing. But what's interesting about the use of world changing rather than person changing is I think we've witnessed something really fascinating, which is people used to think therapy was quite selfish or like there was something wrong with you to need it. Like navel gazing, you know, the idea that you spend this hour just reflecting on yourself. And that stigma obviously changed. And now we feel, I think, more able to say, I need help and therefore can access therapy. But Instagram has been really important in getting psychology out to the masses, but has kind of continued with this idea that learning psychology is very much about, I need to learn about myself, right? I'll learn about myself and how to look after myself and how I'll change my moods. And it's often about judging other people like, you have bad boundaries, you are toxic. Whereas the reality is when we share psychology in a really nuanced and accurate way, we're not just saying, here's the information you need to understand your emotions and to cope. This is also the information you need in order to relate differently with people around you, understand the people around you, understand what they need and how to support them. So it has a ripple effect. That is how we change the world, right? It's not just by looking into ourselves and figuring out what we need. It's about understanding the fundamentals of human psychology that we all experience and trying to create a world in which we can support each other and so no one feels alone. Yeah, because, you know, you talk about beautifully in the book, but when we can unlock that compassion for ourselves, you know, I've seen it in myself. You know, I never think now what's wrong with that person, ever. I think that person to me looks like they're struggling with avoidant attachment. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because I've learned about that stuff. I'm like, yeah. they're, not, they're not rude. It's hard to judge when you really understand yourself. When I really understand myself and I can be kind to myself, I find it really hard to judge others, actually. Yes. Because I just know we're all trying our best. Yes, most people. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. And even when people aren't, there's normally a good psychological reason for it. So let's talk about attachment styles because I mentioned it and I think it's so illuminating to understand this, you know, as how we relate to others, but also for our children and our parenting. So what are attachment styles and why does it matter? So I feel like you definitely know the answer to this. So it's quite funny that you're asking me this question, but I will nonetheless answer your question. I see uh, attachment styles as essentially a blueprint in terms of the way that you relate. It's interesting because I think we are changing our concept of attachment styles a little bit, but essentially we talk about people falling into a secure attachment style, which is roughly 50% of the population. So these would be people whose early caregivers met their needs in a way that made them feel kind of seen, understood and supported. And this matters because those kids learned early on, people will be there for me. People want to know how I feel. 
can support me and I can build a trusting relationship going forward. Do you have a secure attachment style? Do you mind me asking? No, I have an avoidant. Good. Okay. So I have an avoidant attachment style too. So the rest of the population, we tend to say fall into this insecure attachment style. But within that, we have avoidant, anxious, and then we actually have some other versions, but that's roughly 2% of the population. So I'm just going to talk about avoidant and anxious. The reason I asked you whether you have a, a secure attachment style is we have to be very careful that we don't think there's something wrong with me if I have an insecure attachment style and that other people don't struggle like this or don't have the same experiences as me. It's important to know that therapists too have avoidant attachment styles and that's okay and anxious attachment styles. So if you have an anxious attachment style, this generally arises because the parent has been intermittent in meeting your needs. You know, so one minute they're there, absolutely responding to you the way you need, giving a cuddle, recognizing your emotions, then maybe the next minute they've disappeared. Or the next minute they're overwhelming you with their emotions. There's many other reasons. It's so cool how children adapt. This child, because obviously they don't know when the caregiver is going to interact with them in the way they need, they start eliciting or trying to gain interaction as often as possible, knowing that at some point they will get what they need. It's like, have you ever had a puppy? Yeah. So you know how puppies are really excitable and they're like, hey, hey, pick me, pick me. People can't see me bouncing up and down in front of the camera. But children who have this intermittent reinforcement of their needs or intermittent meeting of their needs very smartly center their caregiver in the center of their mind and like a puppy, keep initiating interaction. They often actually tend to be quite critical towards themselves, saying they're needy or clingy, for example because they really want connection, keep driving for connection and feel like other people don't necessarily meet them where they're at. Now, the avoidance in us, we're the cats, yes? The cool cats. <laughs> I don't know if we're that cool. Well, you, but let's say you're very cool. So it tends to be, again, I don't want to make big statements, but it tends to be that someone might develop an avoidant attachment because their caregiver consistently misses their needs for one reason or another. Now, this child, again, is extremely smart and adapts to manage the distress of this. But instead of going the anxious route and initiating more contact, the avoidant child, knowing this doesn't work, starts to become self-reliant, tends to move into their head, becoming a logical thinker, trying to dampen down all of their emotions. As an adult, the cat seems aloof, right? You know, as long as the cat comes to you, you're allowed to stroke it. <laughs> you lean in too quickly and that cat is you know, run a mile is in the opposite side of the house. But what's particularly interesting is that whilst the avoidant and the anxious person may seem very different on the surface, the driving force behind both of these ways of being is exactly the same. The fear that other people cannot and will not want to be there for them. So that's a whistle-top tour of those things. But the reason I said at the beginning, some of our ideas around these things are kind of changing, is it used to be quite fatalistic, the idea that you have one attachment style and you'll be like that for life. But actually, we all know someone in our life that actually makes us feel really secure, that we're able to be comfortable around them. We maybe have a boss who, even though I'm avoidant, I once had this micromanaging boss Sometimes she really loved me and most of the time she really hated me and I never know when she was going to love me. I became incredibly anxiously attached. So there are different people who will bring out different parts of our personality and relationship styles, but we tend to have this central theme 
So growing up, I was hyper independent, for example, and was told when I was dating that I keep people at arm's length. And those are quite textbook signs of an avoidant attachment style. As a parent, how can me understanding that I have this avoidant attachment style help me to not repeat that same avoidance with my children? Because that's the other piece of the complex puzzle, right? When we're parents. Yes, because those original attachment styles of ours are mainly reactivated when we're in stressful slash very close and intimate relationships. And I don't really know any phrase that describes having a baby more accurately. High stress, intimate. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it. Yes, it sends us back into these ways. And I suppose, firstly, and this is always the point about everything in psychology, once you're able to identify your attachment style, you're able to identify when it shows up. So, for example, you may notice that when your baby cries for you, your automatic tendency is like, oh, that might not be conscious, but a kind of shutting down feeling. Yeah, that's what I experienced. Yeah. So once you know, oh, this isn't because I'm a bad mom. I'm not saying that that's what you thought, but most parents, right? That is the first thought. Why don't I want to rush to this child? Well, because you learned early to stay safe from stress by shutting down and avoiding that. So firstly, knowing that you are not a bad person, (laughs) knowing where these patterns are likely to occur. That means you can then decide on a way of acting in that moment. You are not a robot. Yes, your brain tries to guide you in a certain way, but through mindfulness and coming back to the present moment and offering yourself self-compassion, you can soothe your system enough to take action of your choice rather than unconsciously. And finally, you can learn secure attachment. We know this, not just in parents, in everyone. We know that there are many ways that you can find a way back towards feeling calm and centered around people who would normally make you feel a little bit anxious or stressed out. What are some of those ways? So there's some quite fun ways, actually. For example, have you read the book Attached by Levine and Hellier? Is that Hella? Yeah. Hella. It's kind of anxious focused, right? Yes, it's funny. It is anxious focused, and I think for good reason. And it goes back to... I love it. I love it. I think it's great. There's a reason why, and that is because often avoidant people get kind of bigged up in society. Have you noticed that? We tend to be like, wow, they're so cool and aloof. And then people who feel anxious tend to be kind of needy. The descriptions are very negative. And I think that book did a really good job of elevating and understanding the position of the anxious attachment. But in that book, I actually write about this in my book too, they suggested making this table. I don't know if you've seen it. And in it, you write down basically the relationships that you've been in. You write down kind of what caused the ending or how you felt going through. So this is how you can start to identify how you were acting in those relationships. Then you write down the people that you know around you who you believe are securely attached. You write down what it is that makes you kind of believe that they're securely attached. So can you think of someone in your life who's secure? Yeah. Could you give me an example of why you believe they're securely attached? I think I noticed that, well, they're courageous. This person I'm thinking of really has her own back. Mm -hmm. And even in the front of criticism, she seems to be able to stay very grounded in her own worth. Interesting. Yes. Okay. So rather than kind of being like the puppy, getting anxious and kind of leaning in and then pulling back, and rather than the cat kind of walking away, she's able to stay very centred. And she's quite boundary. Like she'll sometimes say to me, you know, I felt really hurt when you didn't answer my call the other day. Mm, yes. I'm like, wow, you're really 
cool. She's <laughs> able, I, you know. yeah. She's able to yeah. communicate her emotional needs without shutting down or becoming overwhelmed and leaning in. This is what's so amazing. This is why the first two columns I was talking about, I've definitely butchered it from the book, is about going through your old relationships and writing down how you felt then and how you acted in stressful scenarios. Because this is how we start to identify when are the moments when my attachment system kind of triggers. Normally, they're around communication points, right? Where someone with a secure attachment who believes they're allowed to name what's going on with them and that other people will be able to understand their distresses and be there for them. People with secure attachment might just name it. So the next thing, as I was saying, is think about the people you know who are securely attached and describe them the way that you did. Because I don't know this person, but now I have a sense of, oh, a secure person tends to label the times when in relationship there is conflict. And then you would keep doing this. Maybe, for example, you know, five different people who are securely attached. Maybe it's someone in a movie. And then you think, okay, if I was in a moment like last week when I was stressed out, or if I was in a moment like I wrote down in that first list with an ex-partner, how could I use what I've seen these other people do to guide my behavior and make me act in a way that is more secure? What's really interesting is, This sounds like it's a fake it till you make it, right? Act secure and see what happens. But what's interesting is, let's say, for example, you and your partner, I don't know, is there a partner at home? Yeah, I've got a baby, right? Yes. So let's say, for example, your child is causing distress at home and your tendency is to be avoidant. So you tend to maybe shut down. Partner has to almost mind read a little bit how you're feeling. I have no idea. Now you've described what your secure friend would do. You can think, okay. So I'm actually struggling right now. My tendency is to run. What I really need to do is communicate to my partner how I'm feeling and why. Once you do that, then often the other person does say, okay, thanks for telling me. And over time, you reprogram this blueprint that you have in your mind, which is in the past, no one will be there for me. This time it's, oh, every time I communicate what I need, someone does seem to be there for me. And this is how you earn secure attachment. Communicate, communicate, communicate. And what about for, you know, I'm thinking about my little girls, you know, they're six and two, you know, ideally I'd love them to come out of their childhood with a secure attachment. And I think I do a good enough job of soothing their emotions. You know, despite having this avoidant blueprint, you know, I still kind of am able to name their feelings and not run from them. But are there other things like you've just described, like brilliant tools that we as parents can do to give our children more of a chance of having this gift? I mean, I cannot imagine what it would feel like to just go through childhood and just having that secure attachment. First thing, again, if your child does come out as an adult with an avoidant or an anxious attachment style, it doesn't mean that their life is ruined, right? You and I are very good examples that you can be a fully functioning, quite brilliant human. Beautiful human. Beautiful human, whatever your attachment style. But I think, firstly, I want to revisit something you just said about talking through someone's emotions. I think we really underestimate how important it is to be able to label a child's emotions. And I always think about this in a way of a mother bird rather disgustingly chewing up a worm and regurgitating it into their child's mouth. That is essentially, you know, one of the biggest gifts a caregiver can give a child is, I see how you're feeling on the inside. You don't have the words for it yet. So I'll speculate it out loud. So for example, oh, you're crying. I think it's because you're cold. If it is, we just wrap a blanket around you. I give you a cuddle. Or for example, you're crying, you fell and hurt your knee. Oh, you've got a cut. It's okay. 
we put a plaster over it. Or for example, say you've said you can't have any sweets. Yes. And they're like losing it. You're like, I see you're frustrated. I understand why you're frustrated. You really wanted the sweets, but you can't have them till Friday. That's okay. When I'm frustrated, I tend to insert activity here. Because when you do this, the child learns, oh, this feeling is cold. There is a solution for it, which is a blanket or a cuddle. Oh, this feeling is pain. I've cut my knee, but it's not dangerous. We put a plaster on it. Oh, this feeling is frustration. And there is a way to vent it safely. So I just wanted to really focus on that because you said it quickly. And I just think we should never underestimate the importance of giving the child the gift of language around their emotions. It means that as they grow older, they have emotional literacy. They don't get overwhelmed when an emotion arises. You know, most of us, for example, were taught that only happiness is the right emotion, which means that anytime anything else comes up, we're like, push it away, push it away. <laughs> yes. So labeling your child's emotions will make them feel seen, it'll make them understand themselves, and it'll make them feel safe. And these are very important core aspects of a secure attachment style. Again, however, people often hear secure attachments, which is when someone meets your needs appropriately, as I'm meant to soothe my child every moment that they are distressed. Yes, no, this is not it either. I'm not saying wrap your child in cotton wool and never allow them to be distressed, because this then teaches them to fear being distressed, Right? Your child can fall over. Your child can make mistakes. And you can just be there alongside them saying, wow, that was really difficult, isn't it? Let's think about how to move forwards. Does that make sense? And I think also, you know, something, I can't remember who said it on the podcast, but you know that these things that you and I are talking about, because there'll probably be a parent listening, thinking, oh my God, once I left them to cry, are they going to be anxiously attached forever? Like what I've really learned is that these are quite deep grooves. Like this is over years our brain isn't developed as you talk about brilliantly in the book until 25 right so this is persistent patterns this isn't kind of one yes things that someone you know because there will be someone listening thinking oh my god I let them cry once or I didn't name that feeling twice oh Oh my word absolutely yes these are deep grooves and also this actually runs really nicely onto the next thing which is we're not saying you need to do this perfectly. In fact, as a parent caregiver, the moment that you feel like you've, for example, oh no, I've just lost my mind in front of my child. I just, you know, got really angry, for example, or didn't do it perfectly. This is another opportunity to teach your child something. Firstly, making mistakes in front of your kids teaches them that they're allowed to make mistakes going forwards, which is an ultimate gift few of us have. Secondly, it's another learning moment where, for example, I just got really cross because of X and Y. You know, I'm sorry, I just got really like loud, but now I'm going to do my breathing exercise, for example, or I'm going to share with my friend or, you know, you don't have to worry about me because I'm doing X and Y now. So these are really lovely moments where, again, you label the emotion, you talk about why it arose and you talk about what you're going to do about it. So if you miss your child's needs once or twice, I mean, that's actually probably lower than we can, I don't know. I just feel like you're going to miss them millions of times and that's totally fine. It's when it's a pervasive pattern. I did not develop an avoidant attachment style because one person missed my needs on occasion. (laughs) So yes, you do not need to worry about that. Yeah, I think it's important to name that because I always will get messages of people saying, oh my gosh, you know, it's that kind of perfectionism and that fear and that just deep desire, which I just love seeing in people to just do it differently than was done 
I find that so inspiring. The thing about emotions is that I had to learn all of this when I was in therapy in my early Mm. 20s. Like I didn't know what a feeling was, what an emotion was. I didn't know that it was, you know, a physical thing that happened in my body. And then that I could have emotions about the emotions. (laughs) Yes, I know. You can keep going and keep going and keep going. Yes. It's just so frustrating to me. I mean, we'll probably talk about school at some point, but why do I know about algebra and trigonometry? And you you care about thin, cousin tan. Like I just don't care. Yes, we could have been learning this. Yes, I didn't know how to handle my fear or my anger. It is insanity. So, can you do a public service now? I mean, you do it in the book, but what are emotions Hmm. and how do we? this was me, you know, I never learned, I never was taught how to feel them. I didn't know how to actually feel. So I spent my whole first half of my life just avoiding them. Mm -hmm. Because they're terrifying, right? Using increasingly dangerous substances and behaviours. Yeah, Yeah, to be very honest. Well, you're not alone, right? Huge, huge portions of all generations have had to find increasingly more effective means to try and push away emotions that feel terrifying because they were never told what they were. So emotions at their most basic level are physical changes, physical sensations in our body that are meant to drive action. So for example, we have the emotions that are meant to turn us towards things such as happiness, interest, arousal, So let's say, for example, you see a friend down the street, you might have a sudden, well, we know that it's a a rush of, for example, oxytocin and dopamine. You have this urge to turn towards them, to call out their name. Same as if you smell a delicious dinner, the idea is physical sensation arrives in your body, drives action in order to gain something that will help you thrive. Then we have a set of emotions that at their most simply are meant to drive you to survive. In general, they drive you to turn away from the threat you perceive, unless the threat is so close you need to turn towards it and fight against it. So, for example, anxiety. We all unfortunately know what this is. Anxiety is the physical sensation in your body, which causes your brain to slip into a what could possibly go wrong next mode in order to try and predict anything that could go wrong. So you could problem solve your way out of it before it arises. Fear is the physical energy that causes your little legs to want to run in the opposite direction. Anger, however, as a general rule, causes us to want to turn towards the threat that we perceive and fight. So in this situation, it could be that you've got a text from your boss or from your partner saying, we need to talk. You haven't got much information there, have you? But suddenly your heart is racing. You want to either run away or you suddenly become really defensive, maybe wanting to end it with them first. The next layer is, and I won't make it too complicated, is we're not responding to the world. This is the most fascinating thing. You, for example, right now are finishing my sentences in your mind and you'll only feel surprised if I don't say what you expect. So our brain scans the environment roughly four times per second trying to figure out anything that's changed. It then predicts what's going to happen next, simulates what's happening next, and your emotions arise in response to your predictions. Do you remember when I said if you got a text from your boss or from your lover saying we need to talk? You're predicting that it's going to be a bad message. When you smell the delicious dinner, you're predicting it's going to be delicious, hence those warm fuzzies building in your body. So emotions arise in your body. They are the energy that you need to take action in your life that will help you thrive and survive. 
The reason it's important to know about predictions isn't just because it means we often get up, get it wrong, right? We have emotions about things like they were about to insult me, and then they say something really nice. You're like, oh, whoops. <laughs> yes. It's because, as you said a moment ago, we can have emotions about emotions. If you grow up being taught that happiness is the only emotion that you're meant to have, and everything else is to be avoided. When your brain perceives some kind of physical change in your body, let's say, for example, it's anxiety or anger, and you believe both of these things are negative, you'll have the primary experience of anxiety or anger. And now you're going to have another emotion because you predict that this is bad, such as fear. And suddenly these two different kind of energies that are meant to drive you away <laughs> from something that feels scary are overwhelming you in your body. And the emotion feels exponentially large. Yeah. I mean, there's just, I'm just processing. There's just so much in what you said. And something that I still sometimes wonder and struggle with myself is this nuance between feeling my feelings, because Mm. that's new for me, you know, having just wanted to avoid them exactly as you described, happiness Mm. being the only acceptable one to myself. And kind of knowing that my feelings aren't always on point. And I feel like I do this 90% they're not, right? So it's like, I'm feeling really angry about this thing or I'm feeling really sad. But actually, Mm -hmm. if I look at the situation with some perspective, back into, I guess, that thinking, you know, shooting back up to my head a little bit, I can see how that perhaps I don't want to take action from that place. How does someone begin to do that kind of processing? Because it's the feeling and then the processing the feeling. Yeah, 100%. So I'm going to give you three answers brief one. This first one goes back to the question you asked about how do we start getting in touch with our feelings because I didn't really answer that. If you don't know what your emotions are, there's nothing wrong with you. Again, I'm going to do a shameless plug for my book. Read my book. It's going to teach you everything you need to know and tell you how to get in touch with them. But briefly, in case you don't want to do that, if you start a one minute practice per day, well, multiple times per day, one minute, where you just turn your attention towards your body, scan your body from your head down to your toes and simply notice what physical feeling is here. When you find anything, simply label it. So for example, there's tightness in my chest. You might then want to try and have a stab at an emotion label. So anger or anxious, anxiety. The more you practice noticing what's happening in your body and what tends to be leading to it, the more you start to become aware of what we call emotions. That's the first thing. The more you practice, the more awareness you gain. The second thing is, how do you figure out when your emotions are tricking you or not? A really great, simple practice comes from Brené Brown, which is the sentence, the story I'm telling myself right now. So let's say, for example, you're having an argument with your partner, or you think you're having an argument with your partner. I don't know. Maybe you spent the day slaving away at dinner, and they come in and you see them kind of pull a face, like, oh my God, they're so ungrateful. They're thinking my food's disgusting. Yes. (laughs) And suddenly you feel really angry. If you're able to, in that moment, say, the story I'm telling myself right now is that that facial expression equates to my food's disgusting. They're ungrateful. You can be like, what's the evidence for that? What's the evidence against that? Which bit of this feels like it's more my fears or my stresses and strains right now? You could even say to the other person, the story I'm telling myself right now is this. Often the other person's like, wow, that's not what was happening at all. And then you create a more accurate picture. But going forwards, mindfulness is interesting because it obviously has been kind of co-opted by everyone. Everyone loves it. But there's a really good reason that people love practicing mindfulness. And it's kind of a double whammy. 
One is it's about paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. It's about becoming so aware of your internal experiences that you can create a pause between a feeling you have and how you actually then respond. The more you practice it, the more it slows down every internal experience you have that you don't get caught up when anger arises and you suddenly remember, oh, actually, that facial expression wasn't at me. But more than that, what we know is the more you practice mindfulness, we have changes in the brain. So, for example, we have cortical thickening. So that just means more cells, more structure, kind of, is the simple terms, in your prefrontal cortex. So this is if you put your palm on your forehead, it's just behind there. This is responsible for keeping you in the present moment and helping you make complex decisions. And we know there's shrinkage in the amygdala. This is your fear center. So can you imagine not only just practice of mindfulness, slow everything down, make it so that you aren't overwhelmed, but you can observe your emotions and then shrinks the part of your brain that causes the fear and the stress response. So you have this really lovely bi-directional effect that just helps you not only understand your emotions, but manage them more easily. Oh my gosh, I talk to you all day about the power of meditation and mindfulness. I think the biggest thing for me is I've learned to respond and not just react. I was just reacting to everything. It's incredible. I wanted to talk to you about one emotion in particular, which is guilt. Oh, yeah, go on. Because, you know, there's this kind of adage, you know, when you give birth, you give birth to the guilt. You know, this mother's guilt and this mother's guilt actually rather than parental guilt. Guys do have it, but not as much that it's kind of part of the package. And I really struggle with that as a kind of societal message. And I'm wondering what your view is on that and, you know, what people can do who feel this kind of constant sense of guilt with how they are as a mother. It's so interesting, isn't it? I was really thinking just you're talking about why it would be so gendered. It doesn't surprise me at all, by the way. I'm just always really curious in terms of gendering of expectations in people's lives. But it goes full circle to how we started, I think, goes full circle to how we started this conversation in terms of the pressure of being the perfect parent. And I think particularly for mothers, there's constant guilt that you can't do enough right? You can't do enough. You're always getting it wrong. And actually, it's funny because I'm really aware of the double-edged sword of talking about psychology publicly, because I want people to know about attachment styles. I want people to know about how you can support yourself and children in order to feel psychologically strong. But I don't want to add another layer of, you have to do this perfect. And I also think it's a little bit more than guilt. So I'm just going to add something. I think often it's shame, right? Guilt and shame are very interesting emotions. There's almost nothing that we do as humans that hasn't helped us evolve and survive. And guilt and shame arose because if we, when we were trying to exist in tribes thousands, basically a millennia ago, if we did something that caused us to be kicked out of the group, it would have spelt instant death. So we developed these feelings of guilt and shame, these unbearable physical sensations that cause us to want to go and make amends so that we won't be kicked out of the group. Now, guilt is infinitely more useful, I think, than shame. Guilt says this action wasn't quite right, or this action was bad, and I should do something about it. Shame says, I am bad. And I think for most parents I talk to, it's never just, this action wasn't quite right. It's normally, I'm a bad parent. I'm a bad mother. I'm failing as a woman. And then there's not just the parenting. It's then, and now I've looked on Instagram, that person has children and a booming career. So I'm failing in my career. So first thing is, whenever we notice guilt, ask ourselves, Am I aware that I'm saying to myself that that action isn't quite right? 
And if so, I need to ask, why do I think that? Is it because society has told me I need to be perfect? In which case, am I able to be like, no, I see you guilt. I am not buying into this today. I am already doing the best I can. Yes. Or is it because actually that thing wasn't great, right? Maybe it wasn't great. We often do things that aren't great. In which case, what will I do in the future in order? Or have I slipped into shame? If I've slipped into shame, I need to remind myself that shame will make me think that I am bad when actually an emotion is a moment wasn't quite right. So now we switch back to guilt. This thing wasn't ideal. What am I going to do about it? And then we need to pour all over the top of this a heavy helping of self-compassion, right? Criticizing yourself once you're already feeling activated, so anxious in guilt and shame, is like having an open wound and then pouring salt into it. Or like taking a hammer to a broken leg. We know that when we see our friends struggling, that shouting at them is not the way to make them feel better or make them a better parent or make them able to do whatever it is they have to do next. We know that flipping on the kettle is giving them a cuddle, just offering them, you know, do you want to talk about this? Or do you want me to support you with it to like find a way through? Or do you want me to distract you? We know how we would be for other people. So question the guilt, check it's not shame, and then head in straight into what would I do for a friend? How can I offer myself that now? But I'm also aware that parents have very little time. So <laughs> what can I do for myself that will feel soothing right now and move forward from there? Yeah, it's so important, that distinction between guilt and shame. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. In my kind of work with mothers, I think it's 90% of the time. It's so, you know, I love how you say psychology is political and it is societal. Mm. It is so these expectations that we've absorbed from, you know, our subconscious absorbed from media, from, you know, in a way, millennia of gendered, as you describe it, you know, kind of gendered roles and ideals of what we're meant to be and, and how we're meant to show up. And I think all that comes up when we love these little tiny humans more than it's possible to say, you know, that's my experience, you know, all of that. I really want to challenge this idea that with parenthood comes guilt, there's a package. I think we're doing ourselves a disservice by not as you're doing, saying, holding it up to the light and challenging it. Because I think as when we as a society say, well, you know, the baby's born and the guilt is born. Yeah. It's like, where's the healing in that? Where's the change? Where's the... Well, it it means society doesn't have to do anything, right? It means we can keep putting these mothers on these pedestals, as it, well, these fake ones in magazines. I mean, you know, be like, this is what the perfect mother looks like, right? You know, we can keep doing that and be like, wow, you just feel guilty because that's what happens when you like give birth to a child rather than no, if we created a society in which we actually raised people understanding, again, what having children would be like right it's going to be one of your most complex tasks yet you don't talk get taught how to do it at all yeah if we could have a society that talked about doing enough as a parent and stripped away these ideas of the perfect parent or the you know birth guilt people could have more open conversations about how they actually feel about the help they feel they need they wouldn't feel ashamed about it and moment to moment life would just be easier Oh, it's so words that felt like a bomb. Those words, <laughs> that's just like imagine, imagine, imagine. Oh, yeah. well, that leads me beautifully into the last question, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be, and why? Time. Did you ever read Harry Potter? No. Ah, oh, so I, I like, grew up obsessed with Harry Potter, and in it, Hermione has this time turner watch, 
And it means that she's able to go to two classes at the same time. So essentially, let's say she goes to a class at like one till 2 p.m. She can turn the clock back by one hour and then do one to 2 p.m. again. It's something I think about a lot. But if I could give... If I could give these parents the time turner watch so they could just like grab some sleep or to be honest, do whatever the hell they want. I have no judgment. Just the gift of time. I read your question. You'd emailed me saying this is the one question I'll ask. I was just like, it's a no brainer for me. I cannot imagine. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah if I could get those hours back. Yes. Just have a little nap or paint your nails or make some dinner or read about astrophysics, whatever it is you like to do. It would be really nice if you could just have that time to yourself. I think that's the huge challenge with parenthood is just as you so eloquently said, you know, it's one of the most complex, emotionally demanding things we will ever do. And we have to do it in these circumstances of an unsupportive society, physical and mental exhaustion and no time. No time. It's just honestly, it's absolutely. It's like even if you have the will to learn this stuff, you know. I guess that's why I do a podcast, right? Because you can put it on while you're doing something else. But yeah, if you have the will to learn this stuff, there's no time. There's no time. A friend of mine has recently had a baby, and it's just made me see my mum so fundamentally differently. I now basically like. I can't believe I was ever awful to you. I am so sorry. I cannot believe you devoted so much of your life to me. You know, I knew it conceptually before, but now having seen someone raise a baby, well, you know, the baby's very young, but keep a baby alive and more than that, thrive for a few months is just, I just don't think you can conceptualize how little time and how many pressures are piled on until you're in that experience or have someone very close to you going through it. Absolutely. I actually wrote my mum a thank you letter, a like 20 page. I love that. Did she reply? She just cried. She said actually that it released so much guilt that she was holding that she didn't realise she was holding. Wow. That's powerful, isn't it? Wow. Maybe after this, I'm going to go write my mum a letter. Yeah, go write your mum a letter. (laughs) I don't have kids, mum, but still, I'm just so sorry. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's been absolutely incredible. Thank you for the book and thank you for the work that you do in the world. Oh, likewise. Thank you for your work too. And thank you so much for having me on. That was a real treat. So that was the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. Isn't Dr. Soph just incredible? She has so much knowledge that she shares, I felt, with just so much compassion and understanding of what it's actually like to be a mother. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you did, please do share it. I say it every week, it makes such a difference when you share it with your mum friends, your family, anyone at all, because I really think that the wisdom of the guests that we have on deserves to be heard far and wide. And I think us mothers need more support. So please help me do that by sharing the podcast. I will see you next time.